I know a lot of you are seeking a higher quality of life, and I don't know anyone who wants the quality of their life to get worse. But that can happen when you're stuck in a rocky relationship or going through a difficult separation and divorce. My name's Liz Rankin, and I've created the Separation Fix with the intention of turning you away from that mess and in the direction of a brighter future. I hope you find this episode interesting, and thanks for listening. Hi, it's Liz Rankin. My guest today is Sean Delaney. Sean is a psychologist who works at the Moving Mindset Psychology Clinic in Melbourne. Sean was awarded his PhD from Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne following the completion of his dissertation entitled Divorce and the Experience of Australian Men. The last sentence of Sean's dissertation reads, I hope the information provided by this project exists in some small way to help improve the lives of Australian men and their families in divorce. Well, I am certain that the information Sean will share today, both from his research and his work as a psychologist, will help. Because the more that we understand about the experience of separation for men and what helps men adjust to separation, the sooner everyone connected with the separation can move on to a healthier and more joyous life. So, whether you are a man separating, the best friend, the mom, the dad, the brother, the sister, or the ex-spouse, there is something here for you. So now let me welcome Sean. Thank you, Liz. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you so much. So Sean, firstly, how did you become interested in men's experience of divorce? That's a really good question. I didn't start in psychology. Out of high school, I went into business and uh, traveled working around the world and ended up back in Australia. And in my late 20s, I got a bit bored, so I decided to start studying psychology part-time, found that I really loved it and reconnected with uh, the passion that I had for psychology from my earlier uni days and decided to do a doctorate. And I became very interested in men's issues. I think it was partly because psychology over the last 15, 20 years, there are very few men going into psychology maybe only 5 or 10% of, of doctoral or master's classes uh, involve men. And so I think when I started doing my placements as I entered my doctorate, I just kind of got the men because I was a man myself and a lot of men would prefer to talk to a male therapist. I then uh, started getting involved in areas such as anger management, um, working with men who have uh, long-term psychiatric problems, And I sort of just became a bit of a a specialist or tried to specialise in working with men and helping men. Um, When I went to do my doctorate or had to decide on a subject for my doctorate, it was uh, towards the end of the 2000s, so about maybe 2009, 2010. And there are a lot of incidents where uh, family uh, court issues or divorce disputes ended up in quite tragic circumstances. And I really felt like I wanted my uh, thesis and then my practice after that to help men who are going through that process to help them avoid some of the pitfalls, difficulties, and even even quite difficult outcomes. So divorce just became something I I, I felt like I could do some good with. I think um, all Australians will remember that time. And uh, I believe um, Helen Garner's book, I think it was called oh. The House of Grief. I think that um, that best... She's such a brilliant Australian writer, and I think it yeah. best captures um, the tragedy 
of that experience for everybody concerned. So if anybody is interested about what Sean's um, referring to there about that very, very difficult time in um, the family law system in Australia, they could refer to Helen Garner's The House of Grief. Thank you for that. Before you talk about the results of your research, would you talk a little more about the men who were part of your study? Sure, sure. I really wanted to get as broad a group as I possibly could. So the men were all aged between 18 and 60. And I wanted to compare between groups as well as get their stories and understand their experiences. So there were men who came out of formal legal marriage uh, and men who came out of de facto relationships, men who had children out of the marriage, men who didn't, uh, guys who got involved with men's rights groups after their divorce and those who didn't, and those who had a lot of different experiences of support. I did so much to try to get a broad section of men, everything from Google and Facebook ads to driving out into country towns in Victoria and putting up um, posters and flyers in fish and chip shops and pubs and things like that. So I really wanted to try and get as many different types of men as I could because I wanted to be as broad as possible. So in the end, it was uh, 142 men in my in my study. And I don't have the figure to hand, but I had a section in this online questionnaire that allowed them to talk about their experiences. And I was expecting only maybe 12, 15 men would write something. In the end, I think about 120 men wrote about their experience, actually left me a, a narrative or a story about, about their experience, which was just extraordinary, absolutely amazing. And it, it provided me with such rich information, such honest information, and it gave me an insight into how much these men really wanted to talk about their experiences. They really wanted someone to hear them and understand them and, and validate their experiences. Um, it really helped me with the research, then it helped me with my subsequent practice. I have to say, when I read your uh, dissertation, um, part of it—I'm—I've I'm never been very good at statistics, and I—I uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't say a bad thing about lawyers, but I, I find some of them are not quite so good at their maths. Oh, <laughs> maybe the commerce. Well, I'm terrible. <laughs> maybe the commerce laws ones are, but some of the arts law um, graduates that I went to school with—we we weren't so good. We, we're good at addition, but we. Uh, <laughs> 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 so when it comes to your dissertation, the narrative sections where you directly quoted the men, I found some of those quotes so moving and insightful. And there isn't, um, I haven't, um, I may not be looking in the right places, but I hadn't read that those kinds of quotes before. I'm not sure that they're out there. I'm not sure they're really uh, expressed. I don't think you, you get... Uh, these stories or these these experiences too much in the media. I don't think you get them in in online or or, uh, or or paper publications. I think a lot of men carry them with them. Um, I think it's important that they be expressed and understood. Well, you're going to be um, providing a lot of information for me today <laughs> to develop that. So why don't we start the beginning of this conversation with what are the main causes that men give for separation? So, previous Australian research, particularly a study that was done in 2006 with, I think it was 650 uh, divorced and divorcing couples, gave some, some really good information about this and it largely matched what I found in my study. So, by and large, uh, men 
and people in general reported the main reason for their breakups falling into one of three categories. The first are emotional reasons for the breakup. The second are negative behaviours within the relationship. And the third is external pressures, whether they're financial or family or such things. But by a long way, by a long way, the emotional reasons were um, the main focus for people in deciding to separate. Things like communication problems, incompatibility, a general sense of drifting apart are really key factors. Unfaithfulness or infidelity is, is often cited. Um, and I, I think in the, in the study that I referred to before mine, about 20% noted that uh, that was the, the sort of reason or, or the factor that brought about the divorce. But um, I, I really think that it's more of a... Um, more of an indicator that the relationship is in trouble rather than a reason for divorce in itself. Um, when people drift apart, when they communicate poorly and, um, and, and unfaithfulness then comes in, I don't think it's so much a reason for the divorce as, as another factor. What seems to really happen is the couples experience a sort of pile-up of difficulties, a lot of things, uh, a lot of problems, and then there's one sort of event that, that sort of such as a couple one or one of the partners walking out or an affair and it sort of brings everything to a head and at that point divorce or separation becomes possible. I think just referring back to what you mentioned about infidelity, which I'll be talking about at a future podcast, is mm-hmm. that um, years ago I heard someone say, you know, when you end a relationship, obviously the best way would be to um, walk through, walk out the door, but some people jump out the window yeah. and sort of... <laughs> you know a metaphor of you know not doing it quite the right way when things do pile up I'm interested particularly because you know trying to focus on men's experience of divorce and distinctions between men and women I'm interested in the issue of communication as as a reason um, that men give is there anything that you can elaborate in relation to communication I think you could do an entire podcast on communication by itself, but I, I think just uh, off the top of my head, I think we we might get into this a, a little bit um, a little bit later. But um, there's an idea of of couples talking at at cross purposes or missing each other, allowing things within the relationship to become uh, expected or or assumed rather than being talked about and being negotiated. Um, but I think there's also a dynamic that can can start to come into play with couples where it, it, it's almost like a tug of war when no one's willing to relax or drop the rope or, or move towards each other. It feels like when one person pulls, the other person has to pull as a consequence and this dynamic sort of develops where they're both pulling in opposite directions until the rope snaps. I think communication either goes missing or it can become like that and that's where uh, separation becomes possible. Well, communication flows into my uh, next question, I think, being what is the significance of arguments and disagreements in a relationship? Mm, it's it's a really interesting question because um, all couples experience arguments and disagreements and discord. Um, so having disagreements or arguments within a relationship isn't really a, 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 a a predictor for divorce. Uh, a couple who are arguing doesn't mean they're going to get uh, divorced or separate. But research tends to indicate that when these disagreements are focused on problem solving 
or improving communication between the couple, even if they you know, agree to disagree, then, then things do, t- uh, tend to stay pretty good and communication improves and they can then move closer towards each other. But in cases where these disagreements just keep the couple in, in a high-tension, emotionally fraught relationship, it can serve to erode trust. It, it brings about further poor communication and just allows them to, to drift away over time. There, there's something that I think the, the couples therapist, um, Esther Perel, said that, that really resonated with me, which is that um, a lot of people go into a relationship expecting that there'll be these one-off negotiations about what their roles or expectations are, that they'll decide at one point the way they're going to be and then just carry on from there. So to give a really basic example, you know, I cook, you wash up type thing, and then that stays in place. What um, what she says, though, is that a healthy relationship really involves the ability to renegotiate as circumstances change and desires and expectations change over time. I think a couple who are able to listen, adapt and even degree or, or disagree with some flexibility, respect and empathy towards each other, those that really focus on problem solving are the ones that do well. I think where that, again, when that goes missing or where expectations aren't met or aren't able to be renegotiated, that's a, a precursor to separation. I think that that concept of renegotiation is obviously key. Yeah, it, it really is. The idea that things will just be as they were yesterday, and it, it doesn't work that way. And we change as people. Our our desires change, our goals change, our, our lives change, our health, our bodies change. <laughs> to be able to really connect with someone, you need to, to be constantly recognising that change and, and, and adapting to it. And that requires communication and renegotiation. We can't expect things just to stay the same. And particularly as children and more children are added to the picture, mm. people's mm. commitments change. Yeah, certainly. And you see that also when children grow up and leave home and suddenly the dynamic of the couple changes, that they're no longer maybe parents negotiating, you know, school runs and things like that. They're now a couple who have all of this time and, and all of this this space and they have to find a new way to connect with each other that maybe isn't through children. I think that possibly is why there's such a rise in the grey divorce now. It's a really yeah. rising phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think also it's the shift in the expectations of marriage over time. One thing that came out in my research and, and in more recent research is people don't see marriage as, as just providing a structure for their life or, 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 or a, a way to live. They really want the emotional connection. They really want the engagement. They really want to feel close and intimate with a partner. So when sort of day-to-day things might give them the structure, but it might give them that emotional intimacy. Once that structure sort of changes or shifts, if the intimacy isn't there or is allowed to be eroded, then, then yeah, separation can happen. This decision to separate is, for most people, I would think nearly everyone, such a massive decision. There are just so many ramifications, and you would see those ramifications in your work as a psychologist. I used to see them in my work as a family law solicitor and now in my work as um, a mediator. Do you think there's a difference in the way men and women come to this decision? It's a really good question, and and to be completely honest, I'm not sure. Um, My guess is that men and women are probably quite similar in the way they reach a point where they decide to separate, although the way way they go about it might be a little bit different. 
I think going back to the idea of a sort of pile-up of issues, um, what research tends to suggest is that women are often found to be better at recognising the emotional cost of to the relationship of a pile-up of such issues, while men might be more focused on sort of just getting through day-to-day practical issues, um, uh, work and such things. So in general, that results in the female partner being much more likely to consider and, and initiate a divorce. In my clinical work, I noticed a lot of men and, and women experience mixed feelings in thinking about the divorce. And I'm not sure too many people are ever 100% absolutely, completely certain that um, separation is what they, they fully want, except in extreme circumstances. I think there's always a degree of, of ambivalence. And being unsure about what the future will hold and whether the relationship can be fixed or can can move into a different place. But but overall, I feel like men and women just tend to get to a point where they come to recognise the distance between them and their partner and start to consider a life separate. Like I said, I, I think women uh, generally do that uh, much more and get there earlier than men. But uh, I think there's probably quite a lot of similarities, particularly the the emotional needs and the intimacy needs when those go missing. I, I think I think men and women react in very similar ways. In relation to your practice, just an aside here, do you find that many people come too late for counselling from you? Yeah, that's... I tend to find that people try couples counselling first when they're focused on trying to save the relationship. Most of my clinical work is with people who are either have gone through that process and now are either deciding whether to stay or whether to leave and wrestling with that decision, or those who are in the, the very early stages of separation who are trying to negotiate the grief and the anger the communication problems with their now ex-partner and and parenting problems and their own sense of guilt and and shame and responsibility that they might feel for the breakdown of the relationship. So that's sort of the timing that that I sort of work within. That is such a, I'd have to say, that's such a massive responsibility, people coming to you and saying, you know, Sean, should I stay now or should I go now? Yes. (laughs) It is really tough. It is. I, I think we, we'll talk um, maybe maybe a bit later about uh, the, the sort of support and the clinical work that I do. But I think um, it, it's as with all of all of the clinical work, the non-divorce work that I do. It's about understanding your your deeper motivations, your deeper emotions, um, what your expectations are, what your own contribution is, and then being able to make uh, a conscious choice based on that insight. If people can get to that point, then they might never be 100% sure about their decision, but at least they've uh, really considered it, thought it through, and then made a, made a conscious choice. But it is, it's a tremendous responsibility. Back to your, your thesis, and I have to say, I might, as an aside here, is I can never work out with PhDs, is it a thesis or is it a dissertation? <laughs> well, it, it depends on whether you're American or Australian, oh. I guess. In Australia, <laughs> we, we, call it a, we call it a thesis more than okay. a dissertation, but they're basically the same thing. Might be my Canadian background. I keep up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, in your, um, in your thesis, you mentioned that when people want to leave a relationship, they're involved in three main processes. One, making the threatening aspects of divorce less intimidating. Two, devaluing the existing relationship. 
and three, developing a new independent identity. I wanted to ask you about this process of devaluing the existing relationship. Is this a conscious thing people do? I think it's it's more likely to be an unconscious or or at least sort of semi-conscious process. Um, I think in the absence of good communication and closeness, we can start to interpret partners' behaviours in ways that are negative and a bit one-dimensional. In these cases, I think we can overemphasize examples of behavior that confirm these negative interpretations while missing or ignoring actions that challenge them or, or that are positive. And I think to a degree, everyone, even in good relationships, are, are guilty of this from time to time. You know, the, the classic example is, you know, you never clean up after yourself. Never, never once, never at all. It, it becomes sort of very black and white. But in relationships experiencing uh, severe difficulties, I think there's a, a, a purpose that um, that this sort of uh, unconscious devaluing can serve. One of them is, or a couple of reasons, one of them can, it can be a way for a person to justify to themselves the thinking about considering or decision to leave a relationship. But if, if uh, a person is able to devalue the other partner, and devalue the relationship, it might also serve to reduce feelings of guilt or shame um, or responsibility for the end of the relationship. If if the relationship is devalued, the other person is devalued, then the blame can be put onto them rather than accept um, our share of, of what might have gone wrong. So devaluing the existing relationship sort of is a type of affirmation bias? Is that what that's called? Yeah, I think that's that's a fair way to put it. I think it, it also allows people to um, disconnect emotionally from the commitment that they've made and the history that they have with this person. Um, if, if it's the centre of your world, it's hard to walk away from. If it's something that um, that is holding you back, then maybe it's much easier. But I think guilt and shame play really big roles in, in that process. And after separation, and particularly in my clinical work, I see an awful lot of both. Many young participants in your study seemed, I don't want to say totally unaware, but yeah, some of them mm. were totally unaware, totally unaware that the relationship was in trouble. Would you say this is the difference between men and women? Yeah, I, th- I think I think there is. I think it's changing a little bit. It's changing to some degree. I wouldn't be surprised to see this uh, different in coming decades. But the best research we have in Australia suggests that about 64% of divorce is initiated by the female partner, about 20-odd percent by, by men, and the balance jointly. What often happens is the person initiating the divorce goes through a sort of pre-grieving process where they adjust to the idea of the marriage ending, they process the um, the grief and the loss and then make the decision to, to separate or to leave at that point. And often this leaves the other partner, which is, is predominantly men, not realising that this was happening, not realising that the, the marriage was in was in serious, some um, serious danger. So th- this then leads a lot of men in particular to feel blindsided, like this has come out of absolutely nowhere when, in fact, because of poor communication and drifting apart, the other partner has been processing this for some time and then 
makes their decision. Often men can get very angry and feel quite insulted when it seems like their their um, ex-wife moves on very quickly. It seems like they're not processing grief or feeling like they do. Often it's the case that they've already done that work um, and now it leaves these men to do it. So I think going back to something I said earlier as well is, is women talking stereotypes tend to be better at recognising the emotional cost to the difficulties they're having on their relationship and men can sometimes be a little bit um, a little bit less aware so this idea of feeling um, feeling like it, it came completely out of nowhere or or they might say that you know yeah we had our difficulties but I didn't realize that it got this bad I think that's extremely common but as I said I, I think particularly as men start to see um, marriage in very similar terms to the way that women do I think this will probably even out over time and in my clinical work I, I see about a 50-50 split um, between those who, who initiate divorce um, and those who, who have had it sort of feeling like it's been sprung on them. Well people who are blindsided um, obviously it's horrific emotionally but yeah. that we'll talk a bit more about it later but when you are blindsided that way emotionally and you're reeling and your partner is very or has adjusted to the decision, mm. and then you throw in the legal, the legal letters at that stage. You know, when when yes. in this cell, say the man who hasn't recognised it's coming, and he's on a totally different part of the emotional journey that is in shock and denial, and then in the say, we'll say the woman is maybe a bit calmer, a bit more collected, as you said, come to terms with it. Um, when you throw the legal letters into that dynamic, the, the, you know, it's yeah. very complicated. Oh, absolutely. I think also once um, once that decision has been made by one partner, the, the response of the other partner is often, look, can we work this out? Can we try to sort this out? Whereas the other person has already gotten to a point where they've decided to leave. So it's very, very difficult to save a relationship at that point. But once uh, legal issues come in, then it complicates things even further, yeah. We've only had a chance to talk about one of the seven themes of your research so far, <laughs> the end of the relationship. But another important theme of your research and a feature of your work, so important, is helping men adapt to separation. Yeah. And uh, in your study, you found that there were five main areas of adaption. One, emotional disentanglement. Two, anger. Three, psychological health for financial adaption, but I'd like to talk about uh, the fifth one, which is uh, grief and loss. So, Sean, how important is it that men move through the grief of separation? Oh, well, in short, it's critical. It's really important. Um, in my, uh, I think grief and anger often go together. Um, and often anger is a is a is an outcome or a, or a function of grief. Not sure we've got the time to really talk about anger a lot, but we can stick with grief. So in, in my clinical work, I often try to distinguish between different types of grief that might um, might come up when a relationship breaks down. There's often for men uh, a grief about the structure or the lifestyle that's been lost. Lifestyle sounds a bit a bit. Um, a bit shallow, but the idea of having a home, having a house, having a place to be, having a place where your family lives, this can be um, can be a serious loss for men. Grief relating to future plans or expectations, things that that 
that we anticipate we're going to do in the future that have now changed. And grief associated with the loss of a, of a close friend, a lover, a confidant, um, this is, is often a, a loss that's not, that's not recognised. Men are, are sometimes told to, you know, just get over it and move on or meet someone else. And, and often in these cases, the real and substantial loss that they've suffered is not acknowledged by others and it causes even greater difficulties for them. We could talk for the entire episode uh, about grief, but I, I think there's an, an unrealistic expectation that grief and loss can always be put behind us. And there's, I hear clients talk a lot about the idea of closure. Um, marriage or long-term relationships are incredibly important parts of our lives. And it's possible that a degree of grief will always remain for someone who's experienced separation, particularly when there are children. I think finding a balance between mourning what's gone, moving forwards, expanding your life and being able to move comfortably between these two states to be able to recognise and sit with the grief but also be able to focus on, on the shift towards the future. That's, in my view, the way to go. But it's it's a difficult process and it takes time. We don't have time today to talk about anger. I did choose not to talk about it today, not because I don't recognize how important it is and a factor in many separations, the different types of anger. But I really, I think sometimes it's a lot of images of uh, those are the stories you see in the newspapers. And I really did want to talk about this issue of grief because I think it isn't recognized. No, it's it's often not acknowledged. It's not seen. I think it grief can cause uncomfortable feelings in people that we might turn to for support. They might want to uh, distance themselves from grief, um, particularly when the grief is so strong. They might feel like they don't know how to help or how to support someone. Grief can be a, a very very lonely experience. It's interesting um, when I was thinking about. And they are these are generalizations, you know. We sure, don't have, sure. I have to, in this sort of context, they have to, <laughs> unfortunately. But you know, I'm going to be a bit frivolous here. And as I said, I'm not going to the darker side of this experience. And I, I don't want people to think that I don't recognize how you know that impact on so many people. But yeah. you know, when I think about the difference between you know grief for men and women, I have this sort of cinematic image, you know. Of a woman, you know, it's the woman's grief. You know, she's in her PJ, she's watching Netflix, she's got a bar of chocolate, box of <laughs> tissues, you know, the doorbell rings and it's a friend, you know, she's got her, you know, tub of uh, ice cream or something, you know, or maybe like a little bit less frivolously, you know, an image of two best friends, their heads are close, talking mm. or going for a walk, talking it out. Yeah. You know, but when I when I actually tried to conjure an image of a man grieving, I was actually at a bit of a loss. And then yeah. finally, the only image I had was a man alone. What image do you have when you think of men in grief? I, I don't think they're frivolous at all. I think they're really powerful images. And I, I think they speak to, um, to how men and women are, in reality, experience um, loss and a lack of connection, but but also how they're expected to experience that as well. The idea of a man grieving alone speaks to the idea of men being uh, independent and strong and able to tolerate any distress without recourse or, or, or need for help. And 
I do think things are changing, though. I think men are, are very much more likely to have mates who are willing to listen, support, be there for them. It's important to remember that that 46-odd percent, I think it's still 46% of um, marriages, formal marriages, end in divorce. The um, the stigma for, for men is maybe, and for women is maybe less than it has been in the past, and I think you're more likely to have friends who have had similar experiences or know people who have had similar experiences. One of the things or questions that I often ask men when I work with them is I ask them to imagine that their best mate was going through exactly what they're going through and ask them what they would do for them. And they come up with any number of just fantastic ideas and supportive strategies, which then, of course, leads to the question, well, you know, don't you think he'd do the same for you? And, of course, they have to acknowledge that, yeah, there is that support there. But to answer your question, when I when I visualise male grief, I can't help but think of my consulting room <laughs> and the chair that sits opposite mine in which men sit during sessions and the growth and the confidence that I've seen them exhibit when they give themselves a chance to connect to others and get support from people that they care about. So obviously if men are coming to, to see you, they're, they're seeking support from a counsellor, but what other support do men seek when they are separating before they get to a counsellor? This is a really difficult one, um, partly because there are so many preconceived ideas and stereotypes about the way men do or don't seek support. The, the standard response is that they withdraw and try to manage themselves, like I said, but I think there's often much more going on. I think, and, and research sort of backs this up, that men often don't seek counselling or professional support, not because they're not open to it, but because it's not available, it's too expensive during the time of financial strain, it's not geared towards or respectful towards their sense of, of who they are as a man and drawing on their strengths as a man. From my own clinical experience, there's also an issue that comes up time and time again, the expectations and dynamics in the now-ended relationship. So men will often report that their ex-partners during the relationship were dismissive or hostile at them maintaining emotional connections outside the marriage, particularly with female friends, and that their partner expected them to be the, the primary source of emotional support for their husband. So then when divorce occurs, um, not only has the man lost their primary emotional support being their, their partner, but they've also had an erosion of the social support that would have been available to them otherwise. So in short, I think men are much more open to seeking support in the past, but the support needs to be available and designed for them. I think if, if I can just add just a word on couples counselling, a lot of men go into this process thinking that the aim is to save the marriage. And they're less likely to re-engage in support when this doesn't happen. It's important to be realistic when trying couples work. The relationship may still end in separation or divorce. But if partners can learn to communicate better, understand each other better, then outcomes for everyone, particularly the children, can be greatly improved, even if there is still some degree of grief and loss that remains. But in short, my research Men were very, very open to the idea of counselling and, and gaining support, but it has to be there for them and it has to be funded. Well, when I rule the world, I, I'm going <laughs> to... I don't know. I think I might be waiting a while. But um, mm. when I rule the world, I, I think... I mean, obviously, the issues of, you know, once again, it's like mediation. You know, some pe people are not... Um, 
mediation is not suitable for all um, dynamics. But yes. I think counselling for couples is so crucial to, as you're highlighting, helping the parenting relationship afterwards. Yes. You know, yes, I think absolutely. I think it's crucial because, you know, the reality is is that you know, once again, I want to speak for other people, but I think there is a perception somehow that you know, separation and divorce is going to resolve the conflict mm. between the parents, and mm. it doesn't. <laughs> you know, for no, many, it, no. it takes it off to a to- it takes it off into a a totally different area. Whereas if you've had some counselling at the end rather than that whole emotional dynamic um, flowing into your parenting. And once again, I have to get back to the legal process. All those unresolved issues, um, it would be so beneficial for parents who can have counselling together. I I don't want to use the word exit counselling, but really that's how I see it. So valuable. The way that the way that I often explain uh, explain it, just as an aside, in my research, I looked at the the discord or ongoing arguments between um, couples who had children, those who didn't, those who didn't have children, the the discord and arguments just fell away. When children were there present, the uh, level of of I don't want to use the word conflict, but discord stayed basically the same. So it, it's it's tragic when it moves from the relationship into that into that parenting side. But one of the things that I say to guys um, when they have children is that you're always going to have a relationship with this person. They're always going to be part of your life and you're always going to be a co-parent. The task now is to develop a new relationship that's based on um, on the children co-parenting and developing a degree of independence as well. Now, it's easier said than done and it it, it, um, it presumes that the person on the other side is willing to do that. But certainly couples counselling and mediation where you can try to have a good divorce and good post-divorce or post-separation parenting is extremely important. Well, it's, you know, people are resistant to it, I know, but none of this process is easy and um, the difficulty and uncomfortable emotions of a a counselling session well supported, um, I would have to say would far away the the pain of some of oh, the yeah. legal letters <laughs> and some of the legal yeah, processes absolutely. will go through. Um, so I just have to mention I'm such an advocate of that. So yes. quickly, um, I just wanted to go back um, about support because I found it really interesting, you know, in relation to what support men get when they no longer have the support of the primary relationship. And you yeah. said here in your thesis, I'm just going to quote this bit here. It says, It seems that fathers look to their children to provide them with support and love after the end of the marriage. Where this was not possible or actively denied, the sense of grief and loss appears to be focused on and maintained within these missing relationships. I just want to ask what you meant by that. Yeah. um, I think this partly comes into... um, the outcome of legal proceedings where men feel like they haven't been treated fairly and they uh, can have a sense that their children were taken away from them or they were prevented from having having a relationship with their children. I think it partly comes also from the social acceptance that men feel as fathers. Um, it's something, it's often something that men have wanted for a long time, is very central to their identity. And it, it allows, when you think about it, it's one of the few ways that men can both be uh, emotional 
and vulnerable but also strong and supportive at the same time in their relationships with their children, particularly young children. So it's a way of, of being that men may struggle to experience somewhere else in their life. I think also grief needs to be acknowledged by people around us rather than just the person experiencing grief themselves, as we've spoken about. And when men feel like they've they've lost the relationship with their children, often people around them will recognise that and acknowledge that, and so it legitimises that sense of grief. So a lot of their feeling of loss can then be directed into that area because they might get more support or feel like it's um, like it's more valid than grieving the loss of the relationship and the the intimacy and the closeness with their former partner. So it's a less of a threat to their identity. Uh, I think. I think partly. I think. Um, I think we underestimate um, how important fatherhood and a sense of fatherhood is to men, um, how it changes their their sense of themselves and their purpose. Uh, it gives their life or can give their life real meaning. And when that is, is uh, stymied or limited or taken away from them, particularly the emotional connection with the children, it can, it can really damage them, really damage them. Well, this flows on um, to the next question, because the most prominent theme of your study involves stories of frustration and despondency in engaging with the family law system. Do you hear the same stories in your practical work as a psychologist? Fortunately, most of my recent clinical work has been with men in the early stages of separation, trying to keep them and their partners out of the family law system as much as possible. So... Uh, not as much lately, but I have had experience with men who have gone through this process. By and large, most men in my research and those that I've come into contact with who've gone through this experienced anger at the system and the judges more than with their ex-partners um, and, and to a degree lawyers as well. They kind of expected their partners to, to push for their own position within the system. But I think men seem to expect the system to act as a fair and balanced referee, to use the sporting metaphor, you know, the unbiased referee or umpire in the middle of the field and making sure that the game is played fairly. So everyone then plays by the rules and they, they, they're looking for what they see as a fair and just outcome. Um, unfortunately, in the family law courts, if one party wins, it means the other loses and generally at a serious financial and emotional cost. And then difficulties in custody and financial support all come up with these uh, with with these topics, and and they should actually be just talking about custody and financial support or, or child access. They, they're often um, brought together and and conflated or combined when really they should be kept separate. So we can end up in a dynamic where you know men saying I won't pay the child support until I see the kids, and then she says we well, won't see the kids until you pay the child support, and then he says well I'm not paying the child support until I see the kids, and she says well I'll see you in court, and there goes tens of thousands of dollars to resolve an issue that through good communication and good post divorce parenting you would hope that they'd be able to to come together. But as a whole, um, the more you stay out of court and the more you're able to get into mediation with an open mind and a willingness to compromise or at least recognise the other person's position, absolutely the better. Well, I'd have to say counselling first before mediation. <laughs> I-, I, think, I think that's a really good idea. I think it's important. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think it's important for people to be able to enter this process having uh, a sense of balance and a sense of clarity and understanding of what's important to them 
and to be able to think through the the emotions before they, they go into mediation, which should be about practical outcomes and solutions. What support or suggestions do you make for men who are trying yeah. to sort through parenting and property? So it would be counselling and negotiating as much as you can with your partner? Yeah, yeah absolutely. There, there are situations, of course, where... Um, Men might find their partner unwilling to compromise or, or um, and, and women as well on the other side. I think even if you can't do a couple's mediation or couple's counselling, at least trying to seek out some sort of individual counselling, in some cases all you can change or all you can influence is yourself. And if you're able to then to then move into uh, negotiations in a different frame of mind and with some strategies and techniques and some an understanding of your own emotions, then you might find that things get better. And once again, you know, we, I have to be cognizant of the fact that many people cannot do counselling because there are various orders out at the time. Yes, um, yes. And so um, individual counselling there would obviously is really the only option. Yes, absolutely. Sean, I have so many more questions, particularly in relation to the one of your themes, which is the post-divorce support. And actually, even though it's about my I don't know, 15th question, <laughs> it's actually the most important, really. Um, how do you help clients work through this major life event? Yeah, so this this could be not only a, a full podcast; it could be a, a whole series of podcasts. But I'm I'm happy to to share a brief overview of how I work with men going through divorce. Um, so often I'll start with them by by recognizing that when we're at our absolute best, life is still difficult. Maintaining relationships, maintaining work. Um, uh, all sorts of, of things are hard. When we're at our best, life is hard, and during separation or divorce, we are certainly not at our best. So a, a favourite analogy is the marathon runner who breaks a leg. There's no way that you're going to run a marathon the next day. It's not possible. But with care, attention, setting realistic goals and movement towards growth, they'll get back to where they were. Or in the case of men experiencing divorce, they might actually be a much better man and a much better father for their experience. So generally speaking, when someone comes in, um, my first step is to hear them, is to listen to their story, is to understand their experiences and demonstrate to them that someone else understands what they're going through. I'll often talk to them about what other blokes experience when going through divorce and this gives them information about what they may experience or are experiencing and lets them know that they're not alone, that others have gone through this process and have come out the other side. Next step is generally focusing on small things that are in their control that they can do straight away. It might sound really superficial but good diet, sleep, exercise and positive social engagement, things that you can do straight away to make yourself feel better, even if you're not uh, fully invested yet in the idea of, 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 of moving on, just taking care of yourself day to day. So once we've got some of, some of these sorts of good habits in place, we'll turn to problem solving, managing communication difficulties with their ex-partner, things like words to use, when to have conversations, dealing with disagreements. This is all really important. I'd then take some time or at the same time work through anger and grief with the client, allowing them space to process these emotions and most importantly integrate them 
into their experience of separation. Then we look to the future, what the growth of their children would look like, um, how they'd think about repartnering, how they want to see themselves in the various roles that they still have in their life, particularly as a co-parent and as a man. And just a really important point for men who feel limited in the time and closeness that they have with their kids. This is something that comes up regularly for me in counselling. A focus of my work is to help them think about what type of relationship they want with their children when their children grow up and do as much as we possibly can now to make that happen later on. So, for example, a father might only see his five-year-old son for four days a fortnight, but making his son feel loved and being as active in his life as possible in spite of the pain and the limitations can make for an incredibly close relationship when his son is 15, 16, 17, and at that point can choose to spend as much time with his dad as he likes. Your children are your children for the rest of your life. And the, the real tragedy in a lot of the work that I do is the, the instinct is for men to walk away because it's so hard, because it's so painful. Um, a quote by Winston Churchill always springs to mind, when you're going through hell, keep going. And the hell that you're going through at the moment the absence of your children in your life, the relationship that you feel you're not having with them um, is, is hell. It's terrible, but it can get better if you stick at it. All you have to do, if your kids know that you're there and know that you love them and you spend as much time as you can with them, even if it's limited, at some point you'll have a different relationship and all, all will be worth it. Two things I'd just like to pick up on there. I know the first time I heard someone say to a father, you know, sometimes it's better just to walk away. I actually yeah. gasped and it came yeah. when I was a young solicitor and it was said by a very experienced barrister. And I, I really, wow. I didn't even think that was the, an option. <laughs> well, it, it's not an option because even if you walk away, they're going to be with you. you, you you're their father forever. Um, I, I guess the question is whether you, you want them in your life and you want that relationship later on. But the idea of just walking away, you, you can't walk away from, from the great love of your life. You can't walk away from these emotions. They're always going to be with you. If you're willing to do the work, see mm. a counsellor and listen to what the counsellor suggestions, can the experience of separation and divorce for a man be transformative? Yes, absolutely. They can be stronger. They can know themselves much greater. They, it's not to say it's not at no cost. Um, we haven't spoken. I'm sure at some stage uh, through the, the podcast you'll be doing, you'll talk about the financial cost and financial aspects of divorce, that that will still exert an impact. But absolutely, men can be transformed through this process. They can, one thing again, this would be for another episode, but during the process of divorce and separation, a lot of, of uh, emotions can come up for men connected with their childhood, with their own parents with their own father and their relationship with their own father and they can really through this process really develop a greater insight into themselves who they are and develop a strength that they didn't know they had so it is absolutely possible you'd like there to be better ways to get to that point but um but it can be done well i look forward to having those future discussions i really do sean and uh, speaking of transformation and uh positive things before we end the interview 
I'd like to ask you for a song recommendation. Now it might sound, it might sound, it might sound silly, but I just think music is transformative. I think it shifts your mood. I think it can you know, help you shake out the cobwebs. And I think obviously there's some songs that just songwriters can express things so beautifully and eloquently. So mm. would you have a suggestion for a song before we conclude? It's really tough because most of my musical tastes are a bit sort of depressing and I wouldn't want to share <laughs> well, those with uh, Well, with no, the but they have, they have the insight. I mean, they have the insights those songwriters can put. You know, sometimes you hear a song and you think, oh, it's written just for me. <laughs> I, I think there's a song, there's a, a, a songwriter called Lloyd Cole, who I'm, I'm really uh, very fond of, and he wrote uh, a song called There For Her that I think is, is the, the greatest song I've ever heard that expresses the emotions, the feelings of a man who's, who's just um, experienced separation. There's no song I can think of that really captures the, the, the feeling um, as much as that. But really at the same time, if... if you're going through a difficult time, make sure that you're, you're supported, uh, you're looked after, and that involves some um, playing music that you love and that you connect with and has meaning for you and joy. So uh, that's my recommendation for, for maybe the downside, but um, I'd encourage people to engage with all the things that they love and bring them close to them during this time. Maybe the women listening to this podcast can have a listen to that song to really oh, yeah. understand uh, what your man has gone through or is going through. Absolutely. Sean, thank you so much today, Dr. Sean Delaney. It has been an absolute privilege and I really am grateful and I'm sure the listeners are going to be grateful for your insights because um, this experience of separation for men, there really is not enough available either on the uh, old-fashioned phrase, the airwaves, or in the bookshop. So I really appreciate you sharing all your knowledge today. Thank you, Liz. It was an honour for me as well. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast and if something in the episode has motivated you, I recommend that before you take any action, you get professional advice because the conversations are general in nature and not based on your particular situation. Please reach out to me if you have any questions or if there's another topic you'd like explored. And if you know someone who might benefit from the show, remember to tell them about it or suggest my Instagram or website, www.theseparationfix.com. Good luck being your best self today. Just know I'm out there too, trying as well.